church. Um, as all of you filed out of this room last Sunday, I was deeply convicted in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I, you know, going through the harmony of the Gospels, Jesus just touched on marriage. Boom. And then we were, and then we were on. But I know that we live in a culture that doesn't value marriage. And I know that most of us have been impacted by broken homes and broken relationships and, and different things related to marriage. And so I, I addressed the truths that were in the text last week, but on one particular topic, on this issue of marriage and divorce, I just felt justice had not been done to the text. And because it's such a prevalent issue in our society, I just decided we needed to pause our pace through the harmony of the Gospels and just dig down on this issue this week. So let's talk about it. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Love, true love, that dream within a dream. Yes, yes, we, uh, we, we could all recite the Princess Bride together this morning. What a, what a bonding experience that was. That was so good. It, it was Leonard Ravenhill who said famously, love is blind and marriage is a real eye-opener. Uh, as I think back, I was, I was just reminiscing this week about my first officiating gig as an ordained minister. And as I, as I look back on that, there were a lot of red flags. I was naive enough to think that they could be overcome, but uh, the families of the two people getting married were not really that supportive. And as it turns out, neither of the two individuals getting married were really that committed to Jesus, which was far easier to spot after the wedding. They were in love with being in love. And so they put all their effort into the event. They focused on the wedding day. And it is my displeasure to report that six months later they were divorced. They were focused on an event, not a lifetime of being married. They were overwhelmed with their feelings, but they not prepared for the reality of being married. They were excited for what they were going to receive, not knowing it was going to require more giving from each one of them that they had ever experienced before. And that's the kind of thing that happens when Twitter-pated people, to borrow from Bambi, waltz into marriage, focused on the best wedding ever, and ignoring all the baggage that they're bringing with them. And so it was, uh, I, I, I take um, responsibility for that. As a pastor, it was largely my fault. I also had stepped into a role I was not prepared for. And so I was heartbroken. And I promised the Lord, I would, if I ever officiated another wedding again, that I would not go forward without doing my due diligence as a pastor to counsel a couple and actually prepare them for a lifetime of being husband and wife. So Jen and I, you need to know, we take that that very seriously. And this morning, I, I want to go on to several passages in on marriage in the Bible. I want us to read these together, and then I just want to make some brief comments about each one. But before we go there, let me define for us a term that I think is more basic than marriage and is actually the undergirding support of marriage and ultimately the undergirding support for all of our relationships. And that word is love. We need a clear definition in order to understand things clearly, knowing that our culture has all but erased the truth about love. Everything you will hear in the culture today is a false version 
of love. It's not God's definition. See, love is not a feeling. It's a decision of the will. It's a decision of the will, which, which is to say, it's not primarily an emotion that we have. Love is volition. Love is choosing to sacrifice for the good of another. How do we know that? Because that's what Jesus modeled for us. That's what Jesus modeled for us. He is the source of love, and we are the recipients of that love. He chose to go to the cross for us because he loves us, and he's the one that first loved us, not the other way around. So we we tend to think about marriage and relationships in terms of romantic love, but the truth is that love actually requires a great deal of volitional commitment. Our mind has to be engaged. Our will has to be engaged. And, and we initiate towards others. The Bible calls this agape. That's God's perfect love. And without that agape undergirding us as believers, the eros, the, 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 the sexy, exciting uh, love, right? That, that, that just doesn't exist without agape. It doesn't exist. So with that in mind, let's look at what the Bible has to say about love and marriage. And I'm going to start this morning in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 15 to 25. So if you've, if you've got your, uh, oh, by the way, we, we, we sh- we're shifting away from the Uversion app. Um, if you have the Church Center app, my notes are on the Church Center app. If you go to sermons, uh, and if you don't have the Church Center app, um, Kevin could probably flash a QR code up there or something magically. <laughs> Thank you for being magical, Kevin. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump into Genesis 2 here, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. See what God is doing here? Yeah, name all the animals. Oh, male and female, male and female. Where's my... Where's my other part? Where's my? She's bringing awareness to Adam, right? And so as he's given names to all the birds of the air and the livestock and the beasts of the field. Um, so the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. And you got to know he was excited. Okay. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, the text says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's great. There's this, it's like, man, whoa, man. Whoa, man. 
That's really there. That's in the text. In the Greek, excuse me, in the Hebrew, it's ish. Ish. Ah. Not making it up. It's there. But the first thing we need to know about marriage is that it's between one man and one woman. Not two men and two women. Not one man and two women. Not one person with himself. Not one woman who marries a house, which happened in Seattle in 2014. We live in a weird place. You, you just need to know. M marriage is predicated on a concept we call covenant. Now, it would take several weeks really to adequately unpack and understand the concept of covenant, but I'll give you a quick primer. It's not a commitment. It's not just a commitment. A commitment is an emotional, relational connection to another person, uh, a connection to a, a particular course of action. Commitments are usually broken when that emotional connection and feelings change in the person. The covenant is not a commitment. Covenant is not a contract. Contracts are legally binding according to man's laws. A contract is a legal arrangement that can be broken. Usually it, it, you incur some kind of penalty when you break a contract, but this is not a contract. You know, you think about contracts, uh, prenup agreements are, in my opinion, divorce guarantees. You just open the back door and said, well, if it ever gets hard, bye, Right? If you go in thinking that way, you leave the back door open, that's the way it's going to go. But covenant is legally binding, not according to the laws of man, but according to the laws of God. And so that's, that's far above man's laws. It's an arrangement for life whereby only the death of one or both parties brings an end to that arrangement. So we talk about it in terms of till death do us part. So it's actually... I said between two parties, but that's not entirely true because a marriage covenant includes God himself as the party with the vested interest in this thing staying together. Ecclesiastes asks the rhetorical question, how can two walk together unless they be in agreement? And then goes on to say, you know, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And he's pointing to the, the groom and the bride and Jesus. Okay. And, and so, so then there's, there's, there's this talk in the text in Genesis about leaving father and mother, and you go, Adam and Eve didn't have biological parents. What's that about? Why would that be in the text if they didn't have biological parents? And the answer is it's for us. That's there for us. Because here in the opening chapters of Genesis, we're witnessing the establishment of an institution that God designed and intended for all humans in all places at all times. It's for, it's for all of us. The two become one. And so you'll hear, if, you, if you're in a wedding, you ever go to a wedding, you'll hear the pastor or the officiant say, what God has therefore joined together, let not man separate. Believe you me, you do not want to be the person responsible for the separation of a, a, a marriage. That's, that's a big deal to the Lord. So, from the Genesis text, so, so that's, that's the Genesis text, Genesis 2. We're going to jump all the way to the New Testament to a text that is even more explicit about God's good intentions in giving us marriage. And we're going all the way to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16. Now, if you've got your device, that's not hard. If you've got a paper Bible, you're like, oh my goodness, I've turned so many pages. So 1 Corinthians 7, 
uh, verses 10 to 16. Paul is the one writing this letter to the church at Corinth. And so he says in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. I'm just going to leave that paragraph right there. It's, it's clear. It's explicit. Is it the unpardonable sin? I said this last week. No, it's not. But it does damage when we undo what God has done in our lives. Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, to the rest I say this. This is, this is me, he says, not the Lord. This is my, my opinion, Paul's saying, which is ironic because it's in Scripture, which means it is God-breathed, which, anyway. To the rest I say this, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and yet she consents to live with him, she, she says, yeah, I want to stay married, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Not, not, there's no imputation of holiness because they're married, but living in proximity to a Christian rubs off eventually, right? If they're living consistently for Christ. And so um, otherwise, he says, your children would be unclean, but is it, as it is, they are holy. Right? They're being raised by at least one parent who loves Jesus. But if the unbelieving partner separates, an, un an unbeliever in a marriage wants to leave, let it be so. In such cases, this brother or sister who's, who's been left, they're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So having just dealt with sexual immorality in the church, and the way that God sees that sin in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul in his letter now is dealing with regulative and normative realities when it comes to sex and marriage. And the first and most important of these is implicit in verse 10, that the wife should not separate, break the covenant of, of her husband. Shouldn't that, that's not what God wants. The deliberate couching of this issue within the terms wife and husband is meant to uphold and reaffirm the biblical norm of sex being meant exclusively for the context of marriage. It was never meant to be a commodity, as prostitution makes it, or, or even a form of recreation. It's designed first and foremost for procreation. And though it's pleasurable, that's not its end. That, that's, that's not even its purpose. So the Corinthian Christians were just so consumed with this belief that um, they seemed to believe that if, if sexual immorality was such a danger, it would just be better if they didn't, if they just abstained from sex altogether, even in their marriages. And so along with this was another belief that drove their thinking that somehow celibacy was better, uh, more holy than marriage. Paul, Paul had to do a lot of work at Corinth. He had to do a lot. Of, he wrote at least three letters that we know of, uh, one of which we don't have. But Paul did a lot of work in the Corinthian church to untangle their worldview from the culture around them and to help them think biblically about marriage and, and sex and all these things. 
Now, this, this sounds really scary to our uber-autonomous culture. You know, we live in a culture that's like, no one has the right to tell me anything or make me do anything, but that's man's thinking. That's not the heart of God. It's not God's design. We have to go back to what marriage is because, again, we're not talking about recreational sex or shacking up or playing house. We're talking about marriage and God's good design for the family. It's a found, marriage is the foundation for a healthy family, right? And implicitly necessary to that design is a mutuality of submission and service to one another in, this, in the spousal relationship. And Paul meant this to apply to every Christian marriage. It shows that every wife has affection that is due to her. Every wife has affection that is due to her. Um, it, but just by virtue of being in the wife, didn't have to earn it. It's just by virtue that she's your wife. Same goes in the other direction for the men. The, marriage is about mutuality. There's a mutual sexual responsibility in marriage. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposal. It's 100% meets 100% covenant union. If, if, you, if, you're going in, if you're in your marriage and you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to give her X, Y, or Z because she hasn't given me P, P, Q, R. I, I forgot my alphabet. It, it, it's like, that's, that's holding out on each other. That's not what God's called us to. So the husband has obligations towards his wife. The wife has obligations towards her husband. We don't like the term obligations when it comes to our autonomy. But let me just say this with all the love of Jesus that I have in my heart. Tough cookies. Tough cookies. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And so the emphasis uh, from each spouse towards the other spouse should be, you deserve my care and affection. That's, that's the ideal from God's perspective. It should not be a demand from the spouse saying, you owe me this. These obligations are so concrete in God's word that it is said that the wife's body here in the text does not even belong to her herself, but to the husband and vice versa. Wow. What if people in the church could wrap their brains around that concept? So here we see that there are legitimate and good reasons for abstaining from sex within the marriage, but only for a limited time. Um, well, I'll just say withholding sex from a spouse as a, as a form of punishment or a bargaining chip is wrong. It's, it's harmful. Uh, when we deny physical affection and intimacy to our spouse, we cheat them. Uh, the greater warning here is that Satan is always looking for a way to tempt us and lead us astray. And in that mix, he's got an open door. And so when one spouse withholds from the other that which he or she can, is able to, and should give, it sets up an environment where Satan does some of his best work. And, and I love the, the quote I read this week from Ruth Bell Graham. She said, a good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. You're going to need to learn to forgive and ask for forgiveness if you're going to have a healthy marriage. Uh, that, that's an excellent truth. And so I push my wife to be a better forgiver all the time. <laughs> yeah. So we have to be good forgivers because God hates divorce. Period. No elaboration needed. God hates divorce. Malachi 2, 13 to 16, in that context, God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. 
Uh, it's the undoing of what he instituted in Eden. It's the unraveling of marriage and the destruction of the family that leads to the destruction of cultures and nations. Not that God can't work in that, as I said this last week, but there's this bit here about being made holy in verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let me tell you what that doesn't mean, okay? It has nothing to do with being saved in terms of our justification before God. It's not talking about that at all. That would mean that there were two ways to get to heaven. You could put your faith in Jesus or you could get married. That's clearly not the case, right? So this isn't talking about justification before God, but marriage is a form of sanctification, right? Practical holiness related to living in this world is a natural byproduct of being married because you have to make decisions together. You have to give up some of your preferences. Right? You're rubbing the, the rough edges off of each other. You have to learn to die to yourself. You have to give up strong preferences. You have to live with each other and navigate disagreements and on and on. Now, obviously, none, none of us can save anyone, right? Only Jesus saves. But in the case where one spouse is saved and the other spouse is not, then the question is, well, how do you know whether God would use you and your faithfulness to the Lord in this marriage to bring that spouse to salvation? That's, that's here in the text, right? How do you know you're not the person as they watch the way that you live and put up with their stuff all the time, that that's not going to be the thing that leads them to the Lord? And that, that's the question the believing spouse needs to be asking daily. But all of that presupposes God's design. All of it presupposes that gender exists, um, God made us male and female, and that's not a social construct. Check the plumbing. Uh, check the physiology. God, God made us equal in value, different in form, different in roles. we got to think like Christians and Christ followers. We, ne- we don't need to think like the world. We need to, we need to be informed by the, the text of Scripture. So we, we hit Genesis. We hit 1 Corinthians. Let's skip over to Ephesians. Paul has more to say to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. <laughs> I think this is the favorite feminist text in the whole Bible. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. <clears throat> now, typically, uh, guys like to stop right there at verse 22. Um, there's more. <laughs> there's more, fellas. There's more. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm the Lord of my house. Submit, woman. Right? No, that is not what the Lord is saying here. Uh, For the husband is the head of the wife. Here's the parallel. Even as Christ is the head of the church. Does Jesus do that? Does Jesus say, y'all get in line. I'm going to kick butts and take names. Let's go. He, he He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He loves us. He leads us in his love and his graciousness. So the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, well, that's the word to the wives. Here's a bigger chunk to the gentlemen. Listen up, guys. Husbands, love your wives. How should we love our wives? Well, he tells you, as Christ loved the church... And just to, just to drive the nail down deep, is Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, 
You're called to give yourself up, fellas. Your preferences. Oh, we're watching my show again tonight. There's just even silly things, you know? There's even silly things. So, and then this is, 26 tells us why. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Do you see the parallel that, that, that Paul is painting here? Jesus and the church, husband and wife. There's a one-act play happening in your house, married couples. Does it reflect the heavenly reality of Jesus and his bride? Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So marriage is a picture that God is giving to the watching world. It's a picture of Jesus and his bride. It's a picture of, of, of the church, right? The bride is the church. And it's a picture of the love between the man and his wife. And, and those things are just interchangeable. And so Ephesians, when you read this section of Ephesians, it's really heavy on the guys. It's really heavy to, to the guys, right? And, and so there are three verses here for the ladies and nine verses for the guys. And the command is to submit. Uh, the command to submit is all over the passage. It's, it's just heavy there. And we hate that. We hate that word. Unless it's somebody else submitting to us, and then we like the word. But when it's about us, we don't like the word, right? And, and we, so Paul's Paul's mission is mainly to call men to headship that reflects Jesus, and his role in the play is that of Jesus the groom. See, your marriage is a play that the world is watching, your neighborhood watches, your kid watches, and they're watching to see what Jesus is like. Dad, they want to know what Jesus is like. So. His role is that of the groom. The man is to protect and serve. The man is called to pour out his strength for the good and flourishing of his wife and children, any children that God would add to the family. The response of the woman is to submit herself to his leadership, not as a servant or a slave, but as his equal, who has been given a different role. She's not less than. She's not less valuable. Guys, if you got any common sense, you know she's way more valuable. Uh, thank you. My amen section. Way to go, guys. <laughs> Your wives are like, I love you so much, honey. <laughs> so dispel this myth in our minds that, that thinks that someone who is, is on the submitting side is less than. And, and I'll just add this, that our egalitarian culture, egalitarian is um, the belief that we're equal in worth and we're a equal in ability and roles and calling. See, God's, God's, God's a complementarian. He says you're equal in value, but you have different callings, different roles. And the world says, no, if we're equal, then we have to be equal in everything. And men can have babies. And it's like, what? Um, that's crazy. <clears throat> so, so this whole thing about egalitarian culture 
has informed our thinking more than God's word in the church. So this admonition in verse 22, wives should obey or submit, is rarely carried out with any consistency or joy. And likewise, men regularly abdicate the call to love their wives sacrificially the way that Jesus loves the church. If in the spirit, we who comprise the church were to embrace these respective calls, it would revolutionize our homes. It would impact our culture deeply. So that, that's, that's why God put it in the Word. He wants us to be agents of change in the culture around us by the way that we live. And then he says, this mystery is profound. And what I'm saying is that it refers to Christ and the church. So everything we've been talking about with regards to marriage is designed to point people back to the Lord. So the ultimate thing we can say about marriage is that it exists to display the goodness of God. And so, so now we see how marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people. Therefore, the highest purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display for everybody to see. And this is why marriage exists. If you're married, that's why God has you in a married relationship. If you hope to become married at some point in the future as a single person, that should be your central hope for your future marriage, to display the reality of Christ in the church to the watching world. And, and so then finally, we, we come to 1 Peter and the Spirit's instruction to the Apostle Peter. So it's 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. So it was heavy on the guys in Ephesians. Now he's got a lot, Peter has a lot to say to the ladies. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, you want to talk about a turkey? Abraham. Dude, you boffed it. And, and then again, boff, like, and here's, and here's Sarah going, whatever you say. Yeah, okay, all right. You are her children, ladies, if you do that which is good and do not fear that which is frightening. And then, a little tag on for the guys, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Guys, did you know when you neglect or, or, or remain angry for an indefinite amount of time against your wife and you're just acting foolish, that your prayers are hindered? Your prayers are hindered. So the instruction here, in, we read previously in Ephesians, was heavy on the guys. Here in 1 Peter, it's heavier on the women. And so let me just run down submission really quickly as we, as we move to wrap up. Submission is personal. It's personal. You won't find the text anywhere saying, be this or do this conditionally upon the other person doing that thing. You only have to do what the Scripture says. If they do that thing, you don't see that in the text. You just see... You be this. Ladies, do this. Men, be that. You won't find admonitions for the wife to tell her husband to step up and be the leader. It never works. Or, 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 or an admonition in the text for the husband to tell the wife to submit. That, that goes over great. 
tried that a few times in my house. Works like a charm. Submit. It's like magic. It's like, whoa. Not, not, no, no, not even close. The individual spouses have to work on themselves before the Lord in humble obedience. They've got to submit to the Lord. So that's the first thing about this whole submission thing. It's personal. It's personal to the individual. It's spiritual. Unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it makes no submit, it makes no sense to submit to the other person. So being being filled, go back to Ephesians 5 and, and go back earlier than the text we just read, a few verses to verse 18, you'll see the admonition to be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit is that's necessary for submission. You don't submit in the flesh. You submit in the spirit. And, and, and it precedes submitting, right? So, so it's spiritual, it's uh, personal. And then the third thing I would just say about it is that ultimately it's freeing. It's freeing. God didn't give us a concept of submission to put us in prison. He gave us the concept of submission to set us free. And, and, and so ladies, in particular with this first Peter passage, um, you no longer have to strive or contend to control your husband or to seize headship because Christ calls you from, for, to freedom from that. He's called you to freedom. You don't have to try to seize it in order to feel like everything's going to be okay. right? You, you don't have to do that. You can be free in Christ Jesus. And there's a tremendous amount of insecurity for many women early in marriage because of this. And because, going back to the Genesis text, because of the curse. In Genesis 3, God cursed men to abdication. You go back and read the text of the, of the curse in Genesis 3. For the guys, it's that we now have a disposition to check out. We abdicate our responsibilities as a default setting. And unless the Holy Spirit comes into us and we put faith in Jesus and begins to renew us, our default is always going to be to abdicate, to say, well, she'll, she'll, she'll do it. I don't need to do it. I don't need to worry about that. She can do it, right? And so that's, that's, for, that's for the men. But then the God cursed women, and, and there was a different curse. It wasn't abdication of responsibility, abdication of role. It was usurpation of the roles and responsibilities of the man. See, and so this cycle happens in a marriage. When the man abdicates in the flesh, just I'd rather watch Sports Center for eight hours straight instead of help around the house or do whatever needs to be done then she steps in to the role and takes over things that he should be doing. And that cycle feeds itself. And until somebody steps in and breaks it, it just keeps going. And so uh, it goes round and round, the cycle of sin, the husband's disengagement and laziness instead of leadership, the woman's complaints and demands instead of submission. But ladies, do you know, you, you don't have to say anything at all here in the text. That's what Peter's saying. In fact, Peter's point is that your position as a wife is so influential, so influential and important just by the way that you live your life as a godly woman without having to say anything, you can influence a husband who doesn't even know Jesus at all. That's power. That's power in the spirit. Remember, there's a prohibition on marrying non-Christians, right? But the, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a regenerated husband, I hope, right? Maybe, yeah. Peter's addressing wives who've come to faith, but husbands who haven't. So there's, a, there's hope. There's hope, especially if your husband's regenerate. A place of submission is a place of power and influence 
that is content not having to have all the authority. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So in, in this issue of beauty is all tangled up in here in the text as identity crisis for ladies, whether you're single wife, uh, single lady, uh, a, a mom, a daughter, you all experience that issue uh, because of the curse, because of insecurity. And so Peter says, don't let your adorning, your beauty be outward only. He's not saying don't be beautiful. He's saying don't let that be your identity. Don't get caught up in feeling like you have to be beautiful to be accepted by people, right? This is not a prohibition against being beautiful. Check the text. If it were, uh, then telling he'd be telling women to stop their adorning in the text. But he says, let your adorning be this. Let it be your character, a, a, a quiet and gentle spirit. Let that be the adorning. He's not telling them not to, you, know, you can't wear jewelry. That's not what he's saying, right? He's he's. Peter would, would have to forbid women from being dressed. And Peter's clearly not calling women to go around naked in the text. So that's not what he's saying. He's saying the adorning is your heart, the condition of your heart before the Lord. That's what makes you beautiful, right? And so scripture is telling us that your beauty, ladies, and your loveliness, the very basis of what defines femininity is not about what's on the outside, your identity is not to be in the outer appearance. Your security is not found in the outer appearance. Peter's contrasting two things in this passage, your external appearance and the character of and the beauty of your hearts before the, before the Lord. The hidden person of the heart is, is the phrase that he uses, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Think, think about those words. Imperishable, that means can't perish, Can't. it's not going to spoil or fade, right? Unlike, unlike our bodies, unlike our faces, um, we, we grow old, we perish, and yet the beauty that he's talking about is imperishable. He uses the word gentle here, which means not demanding or striking out in fear in moments of insecurity. He talks about a quiet spirit that knows even when her husband won't listen, Jesus will. Jesus will, and Jesus will take him to the woodshed, spank his bottom. So, there's, there's, a, there's a rest for you, ladies, a disposition that moves over time from, from being a response to a stubborn hus husband to being the default in everything. It's just like, I'm just going to take it to Jesus. That's what I'm doing. That's my life. I just give it to Jesus, right? Your identity is not your physical appearance. Ladies, I just want to take a moment to reinforce this for you. Wear jewelry for your husband if you want to wear jewelry. Do your hair for your husband. Wear, wear pretty modest clothes for your husband, but know and embrace the fact that your security and your acceptance is not found in those things. That's not found in what the world thinks about you, right? That what the world thinks about women does not matter. This is, this is the question in every little girl's heart from the time that they're a little girl is, am I lovely? Am I beautiful? And our culture spends billions of dollars a year to convince them and you that the answer to the question is purely external. And it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. This is about your heart, ladies. And so Peter's referencing Genesis. He's referencing the fall when he tells you ladies to do the hard thing, the frightening thing. He's talking about submission to your husband. And that's frightening. The track record of male headship was run way into the ditch before the first lap even finished. <laughs> Explains why that's so frightening, ladies. I get it. Um, all women being daughters of Eve, to borrow from Aslan, in your flesh fundamentally fear the leadership of the men that you marry. 
Only in the Spirit of God can that be overcome. And that's what these texts are calling us to, is not to live in the flesh, not to engage in our marriages in the flesh, but to engage in the Spirit, to have healthy marriages, God-honoring marriages. And, and that's, so this is like the blown-up version of just a little, little bitty section of the Sermon on the Mount from last week. I wanted to make sure that we understood this before we go on. And, and I'll just, um, I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts here as we, as we wrap up. There's a, there's a lot more to be mined from these passages that we looked at this morning we didn't have time for. It's not an exhaustive treatment of marriage, but again, I, I don't feel that we could go forward with the gospel, the harmony of the gospels, without taking time to unpack this issue. And if I could, i, I just give you a couple of thoughts here. Whether you're a young person thinking about being married someday, or you're a single adult wondering if you're your bo- current boyfriend or current girlfriend is the one you're going to marry, or, or maybe you're just a married person navigating a season of life with your spouse, or wherever you are, God sees you. In whatever circumstance you find yourself, God sees you. And, and so, so what I would say the first thing is most marriages, if you're, if you're in a marriage or you hope to be in a marriage at some point, most marriages suffer from the problem of presumption. So if you're not married yet, write this down. Think about it. Like, talk about it with your future spouse when you start dating that person, you, you, into the uh, engagement. Talk about it. Do premarital counseling around this. this. This problem of presumption. Presumption is an idea that is, that is taken to be true and often used as a basis for other ideas, though it's not known for certain. Or, or it can be a behavior that's perceived as arrogant or disrespectful or inappropriate. But, but that's, this is the idea uh, presumption in our in our relationships, especially pre-marriage, and certainly in our marriages, that we fall into. I can't even tell you how many times in my marriage to Jen, I've been angry about something that I perceived that wasn't real. Have you done that? Well, I was so angry. I was so convinced that she was just, you know, trying to do something to make me angry, only to find out that it was all in my tiny little acorn-sized brain. Just ridiculous. Ridiculous. I can't, I can't tell you how many times this happened. It's so easy to create scenarios in our minds that we judge other people as guilty, never having bothered to ask a genuine question to try to get to the truth. And this is why Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 16, 32, that whoever's slow to anger is better than the mighty, and whoever rules the spirit can take a whole city. <laughs> yeah, Think it through before you say something dumb, right? James 1, 19 and 20, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to say what's on their mind. It's not in the text. It says, let them be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God wants for us, that he requires of us. So stop assuming the worst about the person you so desperately want to spend the rest of your life with or the person you're already married to and start thinking the best about them. Assume the best. You'll be amazed what it does for your attitude. Assume the best. Here's the second thing I would say really quickly. Um, Most marriages would improve dramatically with a healthy dose of humility and forgiveness. Proverbs 14.4, one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. I love this proverb. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops only come by the strength of the ox. Here's what God's saying. You can have it clean and tidy and nice and neat and just so, 
or you can have the real thing. You can have produce. Well, it's kind of like having kids when you think about it. You can have a clean house or you can have kids. There's a proverb for you. Okay? This is the reality. You can have a neat, tidy home. It'll all be perfect, just so, or you can live life and deal with the messes that come with living life. Um, and, and additionally, one of the keys to a healthy marriage is humility. If I can't control my temper, uh, what case can I make when my spouse loses her temper? Right? Now I'm a hypocrite. If I can't find it in my heart to forgive my spouse when she sins against me, which is rare, why would I expect her to be quick to overlook my offenses? There's a mutuality here. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Take that to heart. So get rid of presumption. Embrace humility. Be quick to forgive one another. And then here's the last thing I want to say this morning. Is pray together. Couples that pray together, stay together. Couples that love Jesus, that are in his word regularly, spending time in prayer, have a much richer life together than those who do not. What is the empirical data on that assertion? Uh, God's word. God's word says that. God tells us what is right and good, and that which is right and good in his estimation leads to our flourishing. And I know that my heart is buffeted and reinforced in the spirit when Jen and I stop and pray together about any given thing that's come up, or we, or we do that in the evening before we go to bed or in the morning if something's on her heart or on my heart. I know this, this is so good for us to do that. Uh, it's, it's good for our kids. It's good for our relationship. It's good for our finances. It's, it's good for our extended family. It's good for you as our church body when we pray for you together. Make a practice of praying together as a couple. And I just say in all of this, I hope that you go away from today with a healthier perspective of uh, marriage and what God intends for it to be. Amen? All right, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for letting us take a pause this week in our uh, series to just unpack some of these realities about marriage and um, what you designed and intended for us in the concept of marriage and in the covenant of marriage. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would be encouraged by this. I pray that uh, we would all be looking to you to, to guide us and lead us in righteousness and in holiness in our lives. And Lord, we trust you. We love you. We love your word. We pray you continue to just drive it down deep in our hearts every time we're together. And we just thank you for this time that we have to worship you as your church body. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for leading us, Marcus. So love is a decision of the will, which is to say it's not primarily an emotion. Love is volition, it's choosing to sacrifice for the good of another. This is what Jesus models for us. So let your relationships and especially the marriages among us in the church be seasoned with grace, covered in prayer, and filled with joy. The testimony of a healthy marriage is a powerful witness to the goodness and grace of God. So cultivate faithfulness in your home and make Jesus known to the culture. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.